God bless you. Thank you. Please be seated. And let me invite your attention to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to talk about some of these issues today. Luke, uh, the first, um, Luke, the first chapter. Uh, there are all sorts of happy. There's happiness over a job promotion. There's happiness over the realization of financial profit. There's happiness over a variety of things. I want to give you uh, some ways this morning from the text about how to be Christmas happy. There's financial happy. There's relationship happy. I think there's a Christmas happy as well, and we want to do all we can to help you with that uh, this morning. And uh, let me set up the stage for you here in Luke chapter 1, where Mary and Elizabeth and Zacharias even are a great big part of that. Mary has heard the announcement from the angel that she is going to give birth to the virginly conceived and virgin-born Son of God. And so she goes for a few months to visit her relative Elizabeth, and some neat things happen when she walks into the door. And we'll begin reading those in just a moment from verse number 39. Well, later, John the Baptist is born, uh, and uh, Jesus' relative, Mary's uh, relative as well, Elizabeth and Zachariah's son, and he is born, and he begins to grow and uh, to develop, and eventually becomes the one that prepares the way for Christ. Well, after his birth, his dad bursts out with a sermon and declares it among the people. Now, he's been mute during the entire time of Elizabeth's pregnancy. But whenever he is born, Zacharias writes on a board, his name is going to be called John, not my name, but John. Then God loosens his tongue and he begins to preach. Hey, when God loosens a tongue, that's oftentimes what will happen, okay? And that's what took place uh, there. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is what happened when Mary appeared before Elizabeth and just walked inside the door, beginning in verse number 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her by the Lord. Did you know what happened here in the text? In utero, in utero, Mary shows up uh, uh, expecting Jesus, and in utero, John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb. He's just a few months along, but even there can recognize the presence of Jesus and breaks out for joy. I'd say he was Christmas happy. That's what happened here in the text. He is Christmas happy in utero. Listen, if a babe in utero can get that happy about Jesus, just imagine what you can do by giving your heart and life to him and your ways and everything about you. Well, I, there are a few truths here, four truths I think that will surface from the text that will help you be Christmas happy. And the first happens to be this. God's thoughts about you are countless. God's thoughts about you are countless. Now, Mary has called herself a couple of times in Luke chapter 1, a maidservant. There were several ranks of servants. 
in ancient households. The steward was the number one, but the very bottom one was the maidservant. Everyone else was in charge of her. And Mary said, I am a maidservant of the Lord. And she indicates that even in verse number 46. And I want you to note what she acknowledges God does in her life because she's a maidservant. Look at verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. In other words, God was thinking of Mary. He took regard over her. He was looking upon her. He was watching even the maidservant. Now, I can imagine God watching kings and potentates and sovereigns around the world. But God had such great compassion and thoughtfulness. He thought of even Mary. And today, God is thinking of you. Psalms 139, verses 17 and 18, I hope is a, um, is a text that you'll help your children and grandchildren memorize. But Psalms 139, verse uh, 17 and 18, uh, says something similar. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand." Do you see the large words here used to describe the extensive thoughts, the multiplied, the countless thoughts that God has about people? Uh, they're precious. That means they're weighty. They're very, very valuable. They're not um, throwaway thoughts. They're not useless, but they are precious. They are great in some. And if David says, if I was to attempt to count them, they would be more than the number of the sand. Now imagine that. Has it ever occurred to you to count the sand? Well, of course not. You, you could never come to the end of it. It would be hard to count a handful of sand, and David is surrounded by regions of it, and a few miles away at the coast, he's got even more. And, and so that's what the text is saying about God's thoughts about people and God's thoughts about you. Uh, I, I don't mean to go Willie Nelson on you, but you are always on his mind. God is constantly thinking of you. Now, that's something that we can say about God. We can't say that about the president. The president doesn't know your name or needs. The, the U.N. secretary, general, does not know your name and needs. Uh, the, the governor of our state do, doesn't know, most of you at least, the, your name and needs. Not, not at all. And even if they did, they, there's not much they could do about it. They, they don't have the time. They, most of them don't have the resources. And, and most of them uh, don't have the ability to take care of your needs, even if, even if they knew your name. But God Almighty, the one against whom there is no rival and there is no equal, God knows you and you are on his mind. That makes me happy. How about you? Mm. So God's thoughts towards you are countless. But there's a second thing. Uh, not only that, but God's actions towards you are pure. Not only his thoughts, but it goes even further. He not only has the intention and the willingness He's got the ability, and so his actions towards you are pure. Uh, some people are afraid of giving themselves completely to him because they're afraid that God will mess up their lives. They're afraid there'll be a train wreck uh, come about in their lives when they give themselves completely to him. Let, let me suggest different. God is the kind of God who is holy, and he never makes a mistake. He's never had a failure. He, he's never fumbled getting into the end zone. He's never fumbled back at the one-yard line either. God is a God who is holy. That means he doesn't sin. That, that means he makes no mistakes. 
That means that God uh, is not driven by any selfishness. God doesn't have any mixed motives. In other words, a positive motive mixed with a negative motive. No, not at all. God is holy. And Mary and Zacharias say this very thing. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. In other words, his reputation is holy. You can't point to anything in the history of God that would contradict that confession. Holy is his name. Then verse number 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So just to be emphatic, God God is the one that is holy, and that's not enough for Zacharias. We've got to say God's righteous as well. So he is emphatic about the trustworthy character of Almighty God. Now let me tell you why that's important. I have a ministry friend in another state who was ministering actually in another state at one time, and he was a director of missions, and he happened to come home one day to the house, and his wife and daughter were in a very intense debate with one another. Their voices were raising, and they were having a standoff with each other. That usually didn't happen. They were all very peaceful, very kind, but they went through a brief time, brief, briefer than most teenagers and parents, but through a brief time of difficulty with this teenage daughter. And as he walked in, hearing all of this, the teenage daughter attacked the mother. And so you know what he did. Without thinking, he jumped into the middle of it and moved her away from her mother, but in the process bruised her, upset her, and scared her. So much so, someone called law enforcement. And they came upon the scene. They removed the daughter from the home as defects did an investigation, at least their version, their state's version of defects. That's what they did. Well, they did an investigation. They quickly got the girl back home. They have had a marvelous, loving relationship since then, as they did before. But in that one brief moment, despite my friend's great motives, despite my friend's a great uh, love for his daughter and his wife, he made a mistake and he crossed the line. Didn't mean to. Here's what I'm saying. Sometimes we can be the best mixture of motives. Sometimes we can be the best of intentions and blow it in the implementation of it all. God never has that problem. God has never made a mistake. God has never crossed an inappropriate line. God is holy. And so when you give your heart and life to him, you've got to understand God doesn't mess it up. God fixes it up all the way through, and you can trust him. I mean, who couldn't trust someone who articulated and made clear and demonstrated his holiness as Jesus is bleeding and dying on the cross and as he's raised from the dead? I'd never think about forgiving sinners in that way, would you? I, would, I wouldn't give up my son. And then he's dead to think the raising from the dead. But this is what this God does. He's holy, and you can trust him. His thoughts towards you are countless. His actions towards you are pure. But there's a third thing I want you to notice. His promise to you, God's promise to you, is sure. Now I want you to notice something here in the English text, beginning in verse 51, that is just marvelous and one of the most encouraging factors in the text. It, it does reflect very, very vividly the Greek text behind the English text, beginning in verse number 51. And look at the tenses. Look at the tenses of God's actions, whether they're, they're past, present, or future. He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Now, did you know what she said? Now, you need to know. At this time in Mary's history, in Israel's history, they are under the jack-booted, uh, uh, the, the, the jack-thug boot of Rome. They are under oppression. Rome dominates everything, and they don't care what anybody else thinks. This is what they do. They, they do such awful things where they'll put a pagan medallion up in the temple and just throw everyone into conniptions. That, that's what Rome is. That, that's how vicious they happen to be. Rome... Uh, even in the small things, the unnecessary things, demonstrates its dominance over Israel. But Mary here talks like she's a free woman. I'm not making this up. Look at verse 51. Look, again, the past tense. He has shown strength with his arm. Do, Do you know what's happening here in verse 51 down to verse 55? Mary is talking about future promises and blessings as if... They have already happened. You see, Israel is not free. Mary is not free. The powerful still dominate, but look at her faith and how she trusts the promise of God. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. Well, that's what he'll do in the future. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. That would happen about 40 years after this utterance. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. Well, that, that wouldn't, it wouldn't take long to do that. That would happen in just a few years as Pilate is banished from the throne. He's exalted the lowly, filled the hungry with good things. And he goes on in verse 55, he said, just as he promised to Abraham. Hey, do you realize what Mary is doing? Mary is talking about great, abundant, future blessings that God is going to bring on Israel in the future as if they've already happened. Because when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. God never breaks a promise because he made a great covenant with Abraham. Now, Zacharias will reference Abraham also in verse number 73 is what he'll do. And and so they're both cognizant of the blessing of Abraham. Jesus and John the Baptist are part of fulfilling that promise to Abraham. So here, listen, listen. God is going to keep his promise to you. He, He is going to keep it with such certainty. It's as if the future has already happened because when you come to Christ, he elevates you to the status of Abraham. He gives you the same blessing. He gives you the same grace. He gives you the same honor. He gives you the same heart. He gives you the same access. And what's more, if you look at Ephesians 1 real carefully, he not only elevates you to the status of Abraham, he elevates you also in the same love, the same blessing, the same access as he gave his very own son when you give your heart and life to Christ. When that is real about you, there is a marvelous elevation that takes place and God keeps His Word to His people. God's promise to you is sure. But there's a fourth truth I think that will make you Christmas happy. And that is this. God's plan for you is prepared. God's plan for you is prepared. You may be looking at your future thinking, there is no way I'm ready for that. There's just no way. I've got to say to you, you may not be prepared for your future, but God is. 
Notice verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist was a great servant of the kingdom of Christ. And here was his role. He was to act like a servant to a king. He's the servant. Jesus is the king. And what ancient, king, what ancient servants would do for their kings whenever they traveled is they would go several days ahead and they would go through the route, the roads and the route that the king would take and clean up the trash. Any difficult places in the road, they would repair. If there were ancient versions of potholes, they'd fill those up. If there were some places that were not very smooth, they would lower them. They would make the road as level as they could. They would clean it up because they wanted the king to have the easiest trip possible from point A to point B. That's what John the Baptist did to the heart of Israel. He was the one that came and with, he would, he would um, my soul, he would, he would uh, swallow thunder and preach lightning. He would preach on the uh, power and the awesomeness and the fury and the wrath of God and call people to repentance. He would break hearts so they would be humble enough to receive this new king, Jesus Christ. That's what John did. In other words, God knew the heart of Israel. God knew the heart of the leadership. God knew the heart of the workers, the laborers, and the peasants. God knew all their hearts and he responded accordingly, appropriately, by preparing Israel for the coming of Jesus. It worked, and here we are today. So you may not be ready for your future, but you've got to be assured and you've got to know that God is already several steps ahead of you. More, He's several weeks ahead of you. God is also several months ahead of you, and because of what Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's been centuries ahead of you. God, you may not be ready for the future, but God is. He's prepared it. He's prepared it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 say, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We're not our own. We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might do them. In other words, before any uh, uh, facet or element the world was created, God already had planned a work for you to do, and He has been ahead of you. Days, months, weeks, years, and centuries, God's prepared for your future, whether you are not. In fact, you're probably better prepared for it than you know. Now, let me close this message by giving you an encouragement. Please, please do not be an accidental Muslim. Please do not be an accidental Buddhist or Hindu. They've got their different rules and paths that when their devotees or their followers follow those, then they get maybe some blessings for the future. None of those world religions can offer really any certainty, but if you follow the five pillars of Islam, you might be accepted before Allah. You might. The secular philosophies are similar. If you've got zeal, determination, and sacrifice, and communism, for example, you can have, or socialism, you, you can have utopia, maybe. That's not the Christian faith. God does not say, you be good, and I will bless you. God says, we're not good, so I'm coming to bless you. That's what God says. That's the Christian faith. In, in other words, 
we're, we're not selfish with our, our faith. We don't do these things. We don't obey God. We don't follow Him, so He'll give us a great future. That's religious selfishness. Right? We do these things. We obey Him. We follow Him. We treasure righteousness because God's already given us a future and a hope and a promise. You see, that the whole orientation is different. We don't do it out of fear of going to hell. We do it out of uh, gratitude and love and faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. Don't be an accidental Muslim. Don't be an accidental Buddhist. Don't be an accidental uh, Hindu. Don't be an accidental secularist where you think that if I do the right thing, I might be okay on the other side in eternity. Now, here's the point I want to make to you. The world religions and the secular philosophies are offering uncertainties to the devout. God is offering hope to the sinner. The world religions and secular philosophies are are offering these uncertain blessings to the righteous. God's coming after sinners. That's what God does. And that is why Jesus came and he's demonstrated marvelous and abundant grace. And friend, he is here today. There is enough love in this room. There is enough grace in this room. There's enough mercy in this room. There's enough forgiveness in this room for anyone to be cleansed and made new and made whole. God can do it because Jesus has come. And ladies and gentlemen, I've just preached myself into Christmas happy. How about you? Isn't that great? Let's pray together. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the opportunity to look into your word and to magnify Christ and his grace. We praise you for that. And Father, we pray.